For the past couple months, we have been talking about wisdom, what it means to live wisely, how it is that these books of the Old Testament, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, instruct us and train us to live wisely and to live well, this art of living well. And we've talked about this in terms of living according to the grain of creation, according to the grain of the universe, which we see especially in the book of Proverbs, which trains us to recognize the pattern and the order of creation, who we are as creatures, what it is that we owe to others, how to live well and wisely within this created order. And then, of course, we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, which teaches us that creation is not just good and ordered, but fallen and marred. Creation has now been changed and affected by sin, and now we live in a world that's not just good, but that's filled with vanities. Yet Ecclesiastes is not all bleak, as we learn. Ecclesiastes teaches us the art of living well in a world that's filled with vanities, but also filled with joys. And ultimately, that requires us to have humility, to learn the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. Tonight, we're turning to another book, the book of Job. And the book of Job is going to bring up another aspect of living that we haven't really discussed a lot. We've talked about living in a world that's both good and fallen, but we haven't discussed living in a world that's filled with pain and our own experiences of pain and suffering. And pain and suffering, the pain and suffering that we experience in the world, this is a, this is a challenge to wisdom. How can you live well when you're going through suffering? How can you fear God, fear the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, when you're experiencing the harshness of isolation and of pain? As many of us know, and people that we no doubt know personally can attest, suffering is one of the main reasons that people end up renouncing their faith or finding that they just can't believe that the world really is good and ordered by a good God. That ultimately they, 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 can't, they can't agree with what it is that the Bible is telling us about how to live well in this world. One of maybe the most memorable examples of this is the Jewish writer Elie Wiesel in his memoir where he talks about, as a teenager, his experience in the Holocaust and in the camps of Auschwitz and Buchenwald. There's a passage near the beginning of his book Night where he describes his experience of suffering and how it changed him. Here's what he says. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night. Never shall I forget those moments which murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to dust. Never shall I forget these things, even if I am condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. Elie Wiesel's testimony to suffering and to how it led him to abandon in this dark night of suffering his belief in a God who is good. 
who has ordered a creation that is good. It's a uniquely haunting and troubling witness to suffering, but it isn't unique. Elie Wiesel is not the only one who's experienced this. Suffering challenges our faith in the goodness of creation, in the goodness of our Creator, in this idea that we should listen to the one who created us if we want to live well in this world. How can we make sense of a world filled with pain? How can we live well amidst suffering? This is the question that Job asks, or as Job himself puts it in chapter 28, where shall wisdom be found? That's what we're going to be thinking about as we study together the book of Job. And Job is undoubtedly one of the most difficult books in the Bible, but also at the same time, one of the most beloved books of the Bible. The great British poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, described Job as the greatest poem of not only ancient, but also modern times. William Blake, the great artist of the 19th century, he did a series of 22 engravings and numerous watercolors that were seen to be some of his greatest works by critics and some of his most beloved works by fans. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who himself experienced a great amount of suffering and pain in his life. Here's how he describes his experience of the book of Job. It is impossible, he says, to describe all the shades of meaning and how manifold the meaning is that Job has for me. I do not read him as one reads another book with the eyes, but I lay the book as it were on my heart and read it with the eyes of my heart. Every word by him is food and clothing and healing for my wretched soul. So tonight we will begin our study of this difficult, but also this well-beloved book. And tonight we're gonna to focus on Job himself. Who is Job exactly? What happens to him in the book? How does he respond? What kind of questions is he asking? And we're introduced to Job with the very first verse of the first chapter of the book. And here's what it says. Here's how we're introduced to him. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, there's several interesting things to note, even in just this single first verse about Job. First is, Job is not an Israelite. And this might be kind of a surprise because it turns out that his story ends up in the scriptures of Israel. But he himself, he is a God-fearer. He knows Yahweh, the God of Israel. He serves and worships him. And yet, Job himself is not an Israelite. He is from the land of Uz. He's probably part of the people of Edom. He's an Edomite. We also don't really know, actually, if Job is even a historical person. Is this book about someone whose name was Job, who lived at a specific time, who had all of these experiences? Are we meant to read Job as a, as a book that is chronicling a history? Or is Job perhaps written as a grand parable of sorts, and we're meant to read it that way? All the way back uh, in ancient times in the Babylonian Talmud, by, uh, in Jewish circles, 
Job was thought of as a sort of parable. And does it really matter if Job is a historical person or if Job is written as a grand parable of sorts? The important thing, what we do know about Job, is how he is described. This verse, verse 1, tells us that he's a man of righteous character. It describes Job as being blameless and upright, one who fears God and turns away from evil. And you can also see from the very first couple verses that Job is not just blameless and upright, he kind of has the character of a priest. For when his children go and gather together for a big social event and party with one another, Job himself goes out and offers sacrifices to atone just in case perhaps one of them may have sinned unintentionally. Job is mediating for his children. Not only is he upright in his own life, but he is atoning for others. And it's not just a matter of personal piety. Job's uprightness, his righteousness, his blameless character extends beyond his own personal piety and beyond the good of his family. Listen to what he says about himself in chapter 29, how he describes his own righteous character. I delivered the poor who cried for help, he says. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and searched out the cause of whom I did not know. Elsewhere in chapter 31, Job tells us even more about his reputation and what kind of character he had. He was someone who was fair and just in his transactions with others. He was someone who was faithful to his wife, who avoided adultery and never went after the wife of another. He was someone who, even though he had great wealth, he put no trust in gold or in riches, but put his trust in God. He was a man of the utmost integrity, someone who cared for the blind, for the needy, for the lame, for the poor, for the widow. That is Job's character. Really, Job actually sounds a lot like the righteous in the book of Proverbs and the way that the righteous, the person who is righteous, that person's character is described. And Job reminds us of how Proverbs says that the righteous, those who live like this, that they will prosper. Just remember what we read in Proverbs chapter 11. Whoever is steadfast and righteous will live, but he who pursues evil will die. Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are his delight. And then also in chapter 14, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. And what Proverbs 14 says about the upright seems to be true in Job's life. Indeed, his tent does indeed flourish. He is blessed with sons and daughters, seven sons and three daughters, With we are told. He has many, many livestock, all in units of ten, hundreds, and thousands. This is maybe symbolic, but it portrays a man who has immense wealth and is blessed with immense amount of children. In verse 3, Job is described as the greatest of all the people of the East, so great is his wealth and his success. But then, pretty quickly in chapter 1, Job's fortunes begin to change. 
Right after Job is introduced, we then read about a very strange scene. We're told that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is in his court and that the sons of God, and this seems to be a description of God's angelic court who surrounds him, the sons of God are gathered with him around his throne. And that there is one of these sons of God who is called Hasatan, the accuser. And the accuser comes to God and the accuser has been roaming around the earth looking at the lives of men and women, seeing into their hearts and seeing what they are doing. And God tells the accuser, have you not seen my servant Job who is upright and blameless? But the accuser, the accuser says that Job's righteousness is really simply predicated on the fact that God has blessed him. Why would Job not be righteous? And that Job would curse God if only God would take away his prosperity. So God allows the accuser to inflict Job with harm, to show Job's true character. And so first the accuser comes and he inflicts Job with great harm. All of Job's wealth is lost. All of his livestock are taken or are killed. And then all of Job's children in a single day are killed when a giant storm arises and crushes the house that they are in together. And this news comes to Job one after another about the raids that have come to take his livestock and the storm that has come to take his children's lives. And Job responds with lament and grief, but also he responds with worship. Look what he says in verse 21 of chapter one. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's response here in verse 21, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What it shows is that the accuser was wrong that even after he suffered harm, even after his prosperity was lost, Job does not curse, but blesses God. And yet the accuser comes back and tells God, well, okay, but it's only because you kept me from taking any of his own health. It's only because Job has not suffered physical bodily pain. That's why he continues to bless you. So once again, God allows the accuser to inflict Job with harm. Job is stricken with sores and boils all over his body and experiences immense pain. Still, he is resolute. Even his own wife at this point comes to him and tells him he should just curse God and die. And yet he refuses. What does he say to her in response in chapter 2 verse 10? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Once again, the accuser has been shown to be wrong about Job. Job has remained upright and blameless even when he experiences great suffering. Job is a kind of embodiment of heroic faith here, resolute and steadfast. He does not, he refuses to curse his creator. 
And you know, if the book of Job just ended there, if that's where it concluded, if that's all we knew of Job, it may not be completely satisfying to us. We may still have questions, but we would have a model of immovable faith, someone who endured and who never questioned, someone to look to, to say here, no matter what comes our way, we can simply continue to bless. We can simply refuse to let suffering overtake us. But that's not where the book of Job ends, not in chapter two. Right after that, Job has three friends who come. Three friends, we'll discuss them more next week. Three friends who come to comfort him and to offer him counsel. And for seven days and seven nights, they sit with him in silence as he laments the grief that has come his way. And then after seven days and seven nights of silence, Job finally speaks. Job breaks the silence. And what does he say? Job breaks the silence and he curses. Not God, but he curses the very day that he was born. Hear some of what he says in chapter 3. Let the day perish on which I was born. Let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. It's very interesting, this curse that Job gives in chapter 3 where he's cursing the day that he was born, wishing that he had not even been born. Why did I not die in the womb, he asks. It's interesting if you look at the language here and how actually what Job is saying here in his curse in chapter 3 actually parallels a lot of the language that we read about in Genesis chapter 1 with the creation of the world. For instance, Job says in chapter in verse 4, let that day be darkness. Whereas in Genesis 1, we read, let there be light. Job says, may God above not seek it, nor shine light upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Similarly, in Genesis, we read about darkness being over the surface of the deep and how God had separated the light from the darkness. Job continues and wishes for thick darkness to seize that day. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year, he says. Let it not come into the number of months. And this reminds us of what we read in Genesis 1:14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate day from night and serve as signs to mark seasons and years. Job even mentions this creature, the Leviathan, which we read about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 21, God creating the great creatures of the sea. But these are just some of the parallels that exist between Job chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 1. There are more. But the reason I point this out is not just because there are really interesting parallels in the language and the imagery of these two chapters of the Bible. It's because it tells us something about what Job is actually saying here in his curse. See, he's not just cursing the day that he was born. He's not just wishing that he himself would have never seen the light of day. Job 
is actually cursing life itself. Job is calling into question God's very act of creation, God's act of bringing light into the world, of separating light from darkness, of making days and seasons of years, of filling and populating a world with life. Job's curse is actually calling into question that very act and wishing that it had never occurred. And it's, it's not just here in chapter three. For the next 30 plus chapters, we read as Job and his friends speak. We read Job's speeches, his words that are filled with bitter anger and despair. So often words addressed directly to God. And the longer that Job speaks and argues with his friends, the more passionate and angry he seems to become. And the more frustrated he seems to become with the silence that he is met with from God. Job's attitude reminds me of that famous line from the poet Dylan Thomas, do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Job is not going gentle. Job is raging. But what exactly is he raging about? In chapter 3, verse 25, Job says that the thing that he fears has come upon him. But what exactly is it that he fears? I think it's helpful to compare the story of Job to the story of C.S. Lewis. In 1940, pretty soon after his conversion, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. And it was a defense of a belief in a good and powerful God, a defense for those who suffer, a defense that a belief in that God is still credible. But when Lewis published that book in 1940, he had not really experienced the worst pain of his life. He had suffered, but he had more suffering, greater suffering still to endure. In 1956, Lewis married for the first time, a woman named Joy Davidman. And later that same year in 1956, his wife was diagnosed with incurable cancer. And she battled the cancer for almost four years, sometimes at their home, sometimes having to be hospitalized. And on July 13th of 1960, she died. And after her death, Lewis wrote another book about pain, about his own pain, his own suffering. Not the problem of pain, but one called A Grief Observed. And here, in this memoir of his own grief and suffering, all of a sudden his writing takes on a very different tone. It's not the cool, rational kind of words that we read in The Problem of Pain. And here, his words themselves are pained bitter, angry, filled with questioning. And what is it that Lewis is questioning in a grief observed? Here's what he says about his own questions. Not, he says, not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. 
The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but, so this is what God's really like. Deceive yourself no longer. This worry that Lewis voices, this is really what's at the heart of Job's own anguish. He never doubts God's existence. He never questions whether God is really the Creator and the Almighty. What he doubts, what begins to worry him, is whether or not God is really a God of goodness and love. Listen to what he says in chapter 10, speaking to God. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Why did you bring me out from the womb? Would that I had died before any eye had seen me. And again in chapter 16, Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. We have to keep in mind, Job, Job knows nothing about what we were told in the prologue, about this conversation between the accuser and between God, about why he is enduring the suffering he is enduring. All he knows is that the God who created him, who gave him life, has now for some reason turned against him. And what kind of God, he wonders, what kind of God would do such a thing? Why create human beings in a world, create them for goodness and for love, just to crush them and destroy them? Who is this God? The Catholic theologian Matthew Levering, I think, has captured the heart of the book of Job and his questions very well in a recent book. And here's how he puts it. Here's how he describes the worry that's at the heart of Job's anguish. In the book of Job, we find the deepest problem that confronts dying persons. In the midst of terror and the darkness of mortal suffering, can and should we love our Creator God? So this is the question at the heart of the book of Job. But why should we read this book why read this book that's filled with so much pain and so much anger and so much doubt? To read the book of Job is to be beset by constant questions. Why is it that bad things happen to good people? Is God really who he says he is? Will our faith endure when we are faced with real suffering? And Job does not answer all these questions. And sometimes it feels like the book of Job is in fact maddeningly silent about the questions that it raises. It reminds me of a philosopher named Nicholas Wolterstorff. And when his son, one of his sons was 25 years old and uh, was excelling in all kinds of different areas of life. So much promise ahead of him. He was mountain climbing at the age of 25, and he fell and he died. And after his death, this philosopher, he wrote a book, much like C.S. Lewis, chronicling his own pain and his own grief. And what's interesting about the book is, very much like Job, what he finds are questions 
questions that he often can't answer, questions that seem to be met with nothing but silence. Here's how he describes his own experience of questioning in the midst of grief. I have no explanation. I can do nothing else than endure in the face of this deepest and most painful of mysteries. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and resurrector of Jesus Christ. I also believe that my son's life was cut off in its prime. I cannot fit these pieces together. I am at a loss. My wound is an unanswered question. The book of Job is like that, filled with unanswered questions that come from Job's own wounds. And when we read these, that's often disturbing and unsettling. We don't often like to read these unanswered questions. Why not just tell us the answer? Why not solve the problem for us? Why not give us the solution? Tell us the truth that will make this okay. But Job, the book of Job, is not trying to answer all of our questions. The book of Job is not really even trying to solve the problem of pain, as Lewis put it. The book of Job is trying to make us more wise. And as Craig Bartholomew and Ryan O'Dowd, two scholars who studied the book of Job in wisdom literature, point out, one of the main lessons in this book is that the wisdom of Proverbs is not a simple path. Human wisdom must be combined with faith and endurance. Faith and hope do not eliminate mystery, they assume and embrace it. So th that's, that's why we need to read Job. Not because it answers all of the questions that we might like it to answer. Not because it solves the problem of pain. But because it leads us along this often hard and difficult path to wisdom. Because it teaches us how to embrace mystery and how to endure in faith even in the midst of our suffering and our pain.